International Women's Day 2022, a full 24 hours of inclusive feminism, right here on 3CR Radical Radio. Welcome to this special IWD program, and that, of course, is International Women's Day. And a happy International Women's Day to everyone. I'm only on for one hour a day, so another woman or women will present the program from five to six. Today, why a Palestinian man has been in jail without trial in Israel for over five years on trumped-up charges. Moves to get Lockheed Martin out of the Australian War Memorial. And what is going on on Bougainville, where landowners have agreed to reopen the Panguna Mine. So let's hear it for International Women's Day, all women broadcasting. Reading from an article by Joe Dyke. At about 9am on the 12th of July 2016, dozens of Israeli security officers stormed through the gates of the Augusta Victoria Hospital Complex in East Jerusalem. They surged past the hospital, which mostly serves the local Palestinian population, and through the main car park to a three-storey building where the offices of the international charity World Vision were located. The officers, some armed with rifles, ordered the charity's few dozen staff into a meeting room and seized their phones to prevent them contacting the outside world. According to witnesses, they were kept there for the next four hours. Occasionally, Israeli and intelligence agents called an employee out of the room for questioning while others roamed the offices searching through files. A month earlier, Mohammed El Halabi, the head of World Vision's Gaza office, was arrested at a checkpoint between Gaza and Israel. And three months after that raid in July, Israeli intelligence agents announced that Halabi had confessed to diverting $7.5 million from World Vision funds over seven years to Hamas, and in total almost $50 million to give to, quote, to buy rockets and build tunnels, unquote. To this day, 150 court hearings later, Halibi remains in administrative detention in Israel. And finally, albeit long overdue, pressure is mounting on Israel to conclude the trial, in this case which is highly derided by the international community as not worthy of a democratic state. I spoke late last week with Nora Mansour, Palestinian educator, writer, activist and community organiser, about the case of Mr Halabi. Nora, is there a so-called hidden agenda in this case, i.e. Israel denying Gazan support from international aid agencies such as World Vision? Yes, I believe so, Jen. I think there's, uh, this is not just about Mohammed al-Halabi, and this is not just about World Vision, clearly. This is about something bigger. This is a crackdown on the entire population in Gaza, all two million Palestinians who are living under siege since 2007. This is, uh, you know, part of the shrinking the space strategy, but also shrinking the support that the Gazan population actually received from human rights organizations and aid organizations. This is tightening the siege through different measures and different means. Uh, and it's not just about Mohammed al-Halabi. Have they succeeded? Have other 
organisations pulled out because of this case? I believe they succeeded to a certain extent. Um, as we know, sadly, World Vision has stopped its operation in, in the Gaza Strip, which means that the direct people who are being harmed by this are Palestinian children in Gaza. So, for instance, they shut down psychological programming for over 40,000 children, providing medical supplies and food supplies. So, um, yes, so apparently this pressure has worked to a certain extent. Was that something a decision by World Vision themselves or was were they pressured by the Israelis to get out? I believe it's a, you know, it's a decision that basically is a product of the pressure that was being put on World Vision. But they have been supporting him? Uh, so World Vision has been very supportive of Mohammed al-Halabi. Um, they have they stood by him and um, they supported his claims that he hasn't that he's innocent and there's no basically evidence to support the Israeli claim in this case. World Vision has ordered uh, an independent audit, which also uh, concluded that there's no wrongdoing, there's no evidence uh, to support any wrongdoing by Mohammed Al Halabi. In fact, it's the complete opposite that Mohammed has been very careful and very diligent in, in protecting the funds and the money that he was entrusted with by World Vision Australia. And they're outlandish charges, aren't they? It is. It is an outlandish charge. It is um, Clearly, the charges are not founded. There's no factual evidence to, to support the claim of um, the Israeli prosecution. Uh, this trial has been dragging for the last six plus years. Um, even the evidence that is brought forward is not, uh, it's an evidence that was produced through, um, basically, as, as they were interrogating and torturing Muhammad, you know, they were saying that Muhammad has confessed to something, but in fact, Muhammad has denied confessing to any charges um, against him. Um, in addition to some of the, the basically, the, the uh, him were produced by or um, brought forward by undercover agents who uh, then suddenly all these evidence disappeared and now the, the Israeli um, prosecution is unable to locate these um, testimonies. So it's, it's very, yes, I agree. It's a very outlandish um, trial. Where has he been held all this time and under what conditions? So when he was first arrested, he was held under administrative detention for 50 days and his family had no idea where he was kept. But then after that, he was held in, in um, Israeli prison in um, solitary confinement, and he was subjected to torture and, and um, ill treatment, which actually has um, affected his uh, hearing in, in one of his ears. And then currently, he's still being held in Israeli prison. His uh, lawyers have requested that he is moved to house arrest in Haifa. Uh, but the court said that if there would be any further extension of the court, then they would consider that. But at the moment, he's still held in Israeli prison. Does he have access to lawyers, his family? He has very limited access to lawyers and his family. He, he, he almost has zero access to his family, very limited access to his lawyers, which has clearly made um, uh, you know, the role or the job of his, royal, of his lawyers much more difficult because they're unable to communicate properly with him. Can we talk about Muhammad? What's his background? Muhammad um, has background, I think, in engineering. 
And when he was working for World Vision Australia, he was managing the operation in Gaza, and he was working with um, within the agri- agricultural sector, but also with the relief, with the um, marginalized, basically, communities in Gaza, such as disabled and children. And so he has a humanitarian, he has, he's an engineer by training, but his you know professional background is uh, focused around aid work, basically, humanitarian work. And there'd never been any trouble prior to this one? No, n- not at all. Are you aware or not if he is the first overseas worker who's had to put up with with charges such as this or similar charges? I'm not exactly sure. I, I'm not sure. I don't have that kind of information at the moment and I don't want to be saying yep. uh, inaccurate information, but I would say something that is alien, yep. you know, in, in the Palestinian context. Like I think many people are accused of, because, you know, it's so easy to accuse people of terrorism and links to terror and, and militant groups because the, Israel, the, defini- the definition of what terrorism is is so wide and broad. So, so, yeah, according to the Israeli law, meaning. Has he had any support from within Israel? Yeah, there have been, yes, there have been a um, few groups advocating for Mohammed um, al-Halabi in Israel, but also worldwide. For instance, we know that the United Nations has issued a statement in support of Muhammad, and they actually called the conduct of the Israeli government and the Israeli uh, court not worthy of a democratic state. In this case, human rights and advocacy organization around the world, also here in Australia, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network has been leading and advocating and um, basically raising awareness and pushing for Muhammad's release. We also know that um, the Palestinian Authority recently issued a statement calling for his release as well. And clearly World uh, Vision has also been calling for his release. And, um, you know, we, we heard from Tim Costello, who um, published a piece a couple months ago as well. So there's, um, there's many, many organizations and parties who are actively pushing and calling for his immediate release. What about world governments? Have they also joined in? Uh, no, government hasn't, uh, world governments, I mean, the, the official level hasn't joined in, in on this call. It's mainly civil society organizations and well, World Vision Australia because, um, and World Vision, I guess, uh, worldwide, because this also has implications for them and for their work, which is the, the key point here. Has APAN approached the Australian government for action? Well, APAN has uh, put up a call to action. And um, yes, we APAN does discuss the case of Mohammed Al-Halabi in our lobbying as well. With the Australian government? With politicians, yes. What can citizens such as ourselves do? They're just people by themselves. What, what can they do? Well, people can respond to a campaign and the call by APAN and other organizations around the world where you can um, send your email, um, you know, you can talk to your local politician, you can, you can continue raising awareness and shedding the light on this clearly outrageous trial that has been going and has, uh, has been going for six years, almost six years, and has been in the concluding phase for over 18 months. And I'd imagine after all this time in detention and separated from his family that his health situation is not too good? No. Health-wise, he's not doing so well. Clearly, um, he 
you know, he's been in prison for the last five plus years. And as we mentioned, he's been subjected to torture, um, ill treatment, but also he's held in, uh, he's held under inhumane conditions and solitary confinement sometimes. Yeah, which is clearly uh, very detrimental for his health. I'm wondering whether you make representation to the Israeli authorities here in Australia about his case. I think there's been campaigns that are directed at the um, Israeli um, embassy. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Nora. No worries. Thanks so much, Jan. And that was Nora Mansour. And do have a look at APAN's webpage. That's Australia Palestine Advocacy Network.org.au. You're listening to 3CR's International Women's Day special broadcast. Angry at paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care, less police powers, a safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. In early April, Lockheed Martin's partnership with the Australian War Memorial is up for renewal and the campaign to get rid of this major war profiteering is in full swing. As activists say, it's been done before, we can do it again. To find out more about the cosy relationship between these war profiteers and the Australian War Memorial, I spoke with National President of Medical Association for Prevention of War, Sue Wareham. So I want to go back to the beginning of these relationships, which to the ordinary citizen would appear to be very strange. How and when did it begin and who was the first? In part, I don't have all that detail, Jan, but we believe, as far as we can tell, it started around 2008, although there could have been some instances before then. But what happened then was that the memorial set up a partnership or some sort of financial agreement with BAE Systems, which is one of the biggest weapons makers in the world based in the UK. That was in 2008. So as far as we're aware, that was the first major one. And that was renewed again. It was a five-year agreement. It was renewed again in 2013. Um, It's no, no longer there, actually. But for that well, whatever the amount of the agreement was, the BAE Systems actually got naming rights at the theatre at the memorial. The memorial has a bit like a lecture theatre, function theatre, I guess, with seating and tech equipment and all of that. 
and from that time the theatre was named BAE System Theatre, which is, as you say, a pretty, a pretty shocking thing to have that intrusion from vested interests into our our key place of war commemoration. You say you, you're not aware of the, the money that may be changed hands. That's a public entity. Shouldn't that information be in the public sphere? It should be. Uh, it may be just that we haven't looked that far back and looked carefully enough. There is a problem in that in recent years, um, it's harder to track what weapons companies are actually donating to the War Memorial up until um, it was about two or three or several years ago that that information was in the annual reports, as you said, and as it should be. But the Department of Finance rules changed several years ago so that entities such as the War Memorial no longer need to list the amounts that various entities, corporations or individuals or whatever uh, give. So they're generally listed in one one sort of long list, uh, either on the website or the annual report or both. But we don't have any idea now of who gives how much. So it's become much more difficult to track these things now. How long was it before other arms manufacturers joined in? Well, I can't tell you that in numbers of years, but uh, all I can say is that certainly in recent years and going back uh, quite a way, you know, back into the 2010s, all the big weapons companies came on board with, and by all, all the big ones, I mean, you know, the top five or top six in the listings of the world's weapons companies. So all of them came on board um, over recent years and that means Boeing, Thales, Lockheed Martin, which is um, subject of current concern and campaign interest, uh, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, and I mentioned BAE Systems. So all of them and others, other smaller ones, um, have donated in recent years and a number of them still are donating. So we don't know what they offer the War Memorial and we don't really know what they get in return? Well, we do have some information from questions that have been passed, uh, asked in Parliament in Senate estimates, um, and there the War Memorial does need to provide answers. So, for example, Green Senator Jordan Stilljohn asked October last year, asked the Veterans Affairs uh, spokespeople for information on this and the information provided at that time was that four weapons companies were had a financial relationship with the Walmart and that was Laidos, which is not one of the big five, but they gave a gave an amount in hundreds of thousands. Um, Lockheed Martin and Boeing and uh, Northrop Grumman. Um, we're not sure about Tales, which certainly has been a significant uh, donor in the past and it, it's unclear uh, what what's happened there. So it's not not easy to track but we do have some sources of information. Well there is one major manufacturer, you mentioned BAE Systems, they're no longer there. What was the story about them leaving? Well MAPW Medical Association French and Four did some cam well we've done some campaigning around this over recent years over the problem of having weapons companies recognised at the War Memorial and BAE Systems was 
certainly one of those that we were campaigning against because it just seemed so wrong for this company, which is um, one of VA systems is one of the key suppliers to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, which are a key part of the coalition that's bombing Yemen and causing so much um, poverty, misery and destruction for children and others. So we campaigned pretty hard on that. We don't know the decision-making process in the memorial, in the memorial council and the executive, but um, we just noticed that last year it was, we noticed that the theatre at the memorial was no longer called BA System Theatre. It had reverted to the name uh, War Memorial Theatre. And uh, on further inquiries, we weren't able to find out much more about that. But that was... That was a good outcome, the fact that the uh, theatre at the memorial is no longer named after one of the world's biggest weapons profiteers, which was key in the bombing of Yemen. So that was that was a good outcome. But we need to make sure that all the other weapons companies' partnerships with the memorial are ceased. So you don't really know why BAE Systems left or were forced out? We, we don't know the process, uh, no. MAPW has uh, sought, sought permission to talk with the whole issue. That permission was denied. They're pretty guarded in, in what they say and it's just hard to, hard to get the information that we want. And for, for an institution as important as the War Memorial, which is so important to a lot of the Australian public. There wouldn't be wouldn't be many Australians who don't have some personal link with deaths in war and with ADF deaths. So for an institution of that importance to be so guarded about its financial arrangements is is very poor. It's really not good enough. This should all be open and transparent. Why are decisions made? Well, what are the decisions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So apart from Lockheed Martin, who we'll be talking about in a moment, do you know how many other arms manufacturers are connected to the War Memorial? Uh, we know that there are, I'm going to say at least half a dozen or so, um, but the list is longer than that. As at the moment, we know that the six biggest weapons companies in the world currently have all given funding in some form to the War Memorial in recent years, not necessarily the current year, but um, in recent years. And that's Talus, Boeing, BAE, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon. They were all huge manufacturers of weapons. They rely on wars and threats of wars for their profits. Lockheed Martin makes 80, 89% of its income is from weaponry. So, you know, it needs, it needs countries to be uh, either at war or preparing for war. It needs tensions to be high and rising so that uh, countries are arming up. So, yeah, we, we know that all the big weapons companies see a, a financial interest for them in having a presence at the War Memorial. And, of course, there's an indirect link, isn't there, with Brendan Nelson, what he did after he left the War Memorial as the director? Yes, there is. In fact, there are a couple of links with the former director, Brendan Nelson. When he was the director of the War Memorial, he had a 
position, I think it was an advisory position with Talis Australia, which was a severe conflict of interest. It really was. It was a paid role, although he states, and we have no reason to doubt, that the payment he passed on to the memorial, but that's not the point for him to have a position with one of the... Um, just not acceptable. So that's one thing. During his time, during Brendan Nelson's time at the memorial, there was a there was the installation of a Thales vehicle. It was a Bushmaster military vehicle, and one of them was installed for display at the memorial. And during the installation, Thales was mentioned specifically in a very positive way. So this is, this is really just selling advertising at the War Memorial, and it's a total, total and utter disgrace. We know that currently still outside the aircraft hall at the memorial, two weapons companies are named, and that's Boeing and Lockheed Martin, and um, they're specifically named as being appreciated by the War Memorial or whatever the, um, whatever the wording is. Boeing has donated funds for an Afghanistan exhibition at the memorial, and Lockheed Martin has given funding in recent times for a podcast series um, focusing on veterans' experiences. Um, it's called Up Close. But this, I mean, every every aspect of this that you look at is just wrong. How can we have a podcast series for veterans funded by a company that needs absolutely needs war to be shown in a positive light or if not in a positive light maybe that's too strong a wording but at least in a fairly neutral and and not a very negative light so it's just skewing what should be a a proper and objective look at war service what it does what it does and none of this stuff is going to get proper recognition when the institution is receiving funding from the companies that need war to be seen in a positive light. Is there any evidence of any other members of the War Memorial connected with those companies, as with Nelson? I can't answer that question definitely, Jan. I'm not personally aware of any. Certainly, Brendan Nelson's relationships was, was very problematic. I think I've asked you this question before, Sue. Are you aware of connections between war profiteers and war memorials in similar countries to Australia? We haven't actually had the opportunity to study that um, in depth, so no, I'm not, I'm not particularly aware, uh, aware, aware of that. What I can say is that to have institutions with um, big corporations with a particular interest has proven a problem for, and I can cite two examples here, the UK Science Museum Group and the British Museum. They have both struck problems because of financial relationships. I think in both of those instances it was with fossil fuel companies. So there have been problems in those instances either with members of their own board, one or more members of their own board, or with the public in stating, um, this is wrong, how can you present science or present uh, whatever the institution needs to be presenting when you're receiving money from companies that need a particularly skewed version of, of what you're meant to be presenting. It's just not possible, and the institutions 
can't fulfil their responsibility to the public, an unbiased uh, and honest look at whatever the um, uh, whatever it is that they're presenting on. So it's um, it is it's not just a problem in Australia. Well, the campaign at the moment is um, focusing on Lockheed Martin, and it's called a sponsorship deal. Just that word sponsorship just sounds wrong, doesn't it? Yes, it does, yeah. Um, and sponsorship implies that there will be something in return. And the War Memorial states explicitly, uh, when asked, for example, in Parliament, when they, um, in Senate estimates or whatever, when they need to give an honest answer, um, they state, yes, the, the companies get, some, get something back in return. And basically what they get back in return appears to be proportional to how much money they give. So whether it's naming rights or whether it's having their name displayed somewhere in the memorial, um, I've given the inst inst systems in the theatre, but um, a number of companies still have their name displayed within the war memorial. So whether it's that or it might be free venue hire and there have been examples of weapons companies having functions at the at the war memorial on the premises which is uh, you know ce celebratory functions which is just absolutely plain wrong this should not be happening in our war memorial so what yes what the companies um, receive in return uh, depends basically on how much they give and the terms of the partnership etc Okay, well, the partnership comes up from renewal in April. How is the campaign going to address this and to try and make sure that this sponsorship or partnership doesn't continue into the future? Yes, the Lockheed Martin partnership with the War Memorial expires in early April. So M Medical Association for Prevention of War is campaigning pretty hard morally wrong of, um, of the institution properly serving the public um, it's just wrong uh, they can't do that while they're receiving funds from the arms trade we're trying to ensure that the Lockheed Martin partnership is not renewed uh, in early April uh, MAPW has set up a website called Reclaim Remembrance which listeners might like to have a look at and we would encourage you to because there we've, most of that is set out on our website, so you can read and learn a bit more about this. But importantly, we've also set up a facility whereby those who are concerned, and that's a lot of people, a lot of people are concerned about this issue, those who are concerned can send a message to the director and the council of the War Memorial urging that the Lockheed Martin partnership is not renewed. And we are encouraging people who do that also to include a personal message because, as mentioned, this issue is important to a lot of people and many Australians take the view that their forebears who fought or even possibly relatives more recently don't fight for the right of weapons companies to have some financial benefit from a war memorial. And financial benefit by that, I mean, of course, advertising. So we're encouraging people to add a personal note matter to you personally. Have you had relatives who, who have fought in wars and who would be shocked by the current 
policy of the memorial or maybe historians who know more about the history of wars and are also shocked at the involvement of involvement of the weapons companies and we know there are a number of historians who, sh- who share that view um, and people from all sorts of perspectives whatever it is we'd encourage you to send them a mess- message to the memorial ideally adding your own personal perspective just in a few words it doesn't need to be a lengthy thing and we'll be trying to get as much publicity around this as we can and the war memorial know that we are watching this process very carefully so we'll be interested to see what happens in April and regardless of that, uh, we'll be continuing this campaign. So the War Memorial knows that we're watching this process very carefully and we will be continuing this process until there are no more weapons companies at the memorial. Are you approaching politicians? We're making this more of a public issue than a political issue. The decisions about where the funding for the council, for the memorial comes from, the decisions are made by the director and the council and that's where we're directing our efforts, particularly during election election campaign which is coming up. We really don't want to politicise this and saying one thing, politicians on another side saying something else and um, other politicians saying something else yet again. This is between, basically between the Australian public, many of whom have deep personal connections with warfare, and between the War Moral Council and Director, and we want them to act on this. Thank you so much, Sue. Great. Thanks very much, Jen. appreciate your interest. Dr Sue Wareham, and do look up the webpage for MAPW. Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians dismantling the patriarchy. Taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID-safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. Live at the Bowl is on now. The Open Air Series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Maya Music Bowl stage. 
share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentremelbourne.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. International Women's Day at 3CR includes all self-identified women and gender non-conforming folk. Hear our voices and only our voices. International Women's Day on 3CR Community Radio. The Panguna mine on Bougainville was previously one of the world's largest copper and gold mines. During its operations from 1972 to 1989, the mine generated almost $2 billion in revenue for Rio Tinto and the Papua New Guinea government. In 1989, an uprising by local people against the environmental destruction and the unequal financial treatment of the local people led to the people of the area forcibly closing the mine, and it remains closed to this day. But documents reveal what the people have always said, the devastating consequences of the mine. Communities living with contaminated water sources, land and crops flooded by toxic mud and health problems, ranging from skin diseases and respiratory problems to pregnancy complications. While the local people urged Rio Tinto to come back and deal with these problems, reopening the mine was not an option. That is, until the outcome of a three-day summit of landowners from the Panguna area and a joint resolution signed by clan chiefs and representatives of the five major clans in the Panguna area to reopen the Panguna mine. The autonomous Bougainville government president, Ishmael Turarama, acknowledged and congratulated the five clans and their representatives for taking the bold stand to reopen the Panguna mine. I'm speaking once again with Vicky Johns, 30-year-long activist for the people of Bougainville for their human rights and environmental rights and just compensation for the legacy of that mine. Vicky, I'll quote what Tororama said in acknowledging and congratulating 
the five clans and their representatives for taking the bold stand to reopen the mine. What were your feelings about that bold stand? Well, when I saw the news on the um, Autonomous Bougainville Government website on the 11th of February, I was shocked. I was in disbelief that, that a three-day summit known as the Panguna Chief Summit came out with the, the, um, this final acceptance where a resolution was signed, a joint resolution signed by clan chiefs and representatives from the five clans of the Panguna area to say that they're going to reopen the Panguna mine. It seems that from what I've also picked up in the one of the Papua New Guinea newspapers, the National, um, the president of Bougainville, uh, Ishmael Tororama, said that the journey of the Bougainville people from fighting from from the fighting to the peace agreement, to the referendum, and to the decision to be independent between the year 2025 to the year 2027 was a journey that had seen revolutionary ideas brought into light as to how Bougainville could move forward. Now, he said also that you know, the Bougainville journey, our journey, has not been easy. 20,000 lives have been lost to find a solution to help the Bougainville government and the people. This reopening will create opportunities and jobs. The ideology sought by all leaders before me is to ensure Bougainville takes control of its resources. This is our tool to control what is yours, he told the landowners. What about the women in the area? Did they get a say? Well, from my understanding, the women did attend, but again, it seems that they're not taken seriously, shall we say. It seems that they were sidelined in the process at the um, Panguna, in the Panguna Mine Dialogue. It also appears that the landowners had said yes to opening the mine because the autonomous Bougainville government can't take no for an answer. So I get, I get this sense that they were squeezed into making this yes decision to reopen the Panguna Mine. So it was the five clan groups from the Panguna area. Apparently the hardliners were there, there from the, the past Bougainville Revolutionary Army. I have heard from one hardliner who said that he wasn't invited. So I think it's been a kind of a meeting, shall we call it, the Panguna Summit, has been a meeting where I consider it being a very divide-and-conquer approach. How did this meeting come about in the first place, this three-day summit? So through negotiations with the Papua New Guinea government and to put independence on the agenda with the Papua New Guinea government, it seems that Bougainville has to go forward with their inspiration to become independent, that they must be economically viable. So whilst other suggestions of tourism and, or ecotourism and agriculture, the fisheries, etc., have been you know, raised numerous times, it seems that the mining company or mining at this stage it appears in the eyes of the current government the only way to go forward to gain their political independence. But I've read articles before this saying that the mine site is such a mess, the devastation 
downstream is such a mess that it will take years for this mine to reopen. Yes. So the specifics of reopening the Panguna mine are yet to be discussed at other follow-up meetings. And at this stage of the game also, the Papua New Guinea National Government has yet to comment on the, the decision where the landowners have said yes to reopening the mine. I've also noted that Bougainville Copper Limited have been very quiet also. There's nothing on their website about, you know, are they overjoyed about the opening of the of the Panguna mine, you know, as just, you know, in this joint resolution that was signed by the clan chiefs and representatives of the Panguna area. So it's all very hush-hush at the moment. The thing was, too, after that um, statement came out from the autonomous Bougainville government that they, they have all, all agreed to open the mine, Bougainville Copper Limited share prices just skyrocketed with the news that Panguna, the Panguna mine would reopen. So it's assumed that Bougainville Copper Limited would be feeling pretty confident to go ahead, you know, with their preparatory work to reopen Panguna, maybe in the next five to seven years. And the thing is, though, they'll need financial backing. And at this stage, it looks like Rio Tinto are very keen. What about the communities downstream? Many have lost their livelihoods, lost their land. They weren't consulted for this decision. No, and uh, the other cry out has been this should be the whole of Bougainville, a discussion for the whole of Bougainville to decide whether this mine should be opened again because it affected so many people. You know, the war, you know, the 20,000 lives that have been lost, is this the correct way to go about really addressing the, the reopening of that Panguna mine? With the um, Bougainville Copper Limited shares, share prices you know, soaring, doubling, skyrocketing when they got the news, I did pick up a statement that was um, put out. Actually, it was, from, it was a statement, an email that was sent to the Bougainville Copper Limited and it was from the ASX, the Australian Securities Exchange, asking uh, Bougainville Copper Limited, you know, some, some questions. And Bougainville Copper Limited clarified that uh, that they were not involved in the Panguna Landowner Summit, and that there is a judicial review of the autonom autonomous Bougainville government's decision not to renew the exploration licence over Panguna, which was set in place back in January 2018 under the previous president of Bougainville, John Momus. John Momus's um, government did not want to see Bougainville Copper Limited have their exploration licence renewed. So now, since 2018, Bougainville Copper Limited has you know, place these court proceedings and they're waiting for these proceedings to commence again in the first quarter of 2022. So any time now in the National Court of Justice in at uh, Waigani in uh, Papua New Guinea. So I don't know what's going to happen with that court case either. So I've kind of got my tentacles, you know, on them, on Rio Tinto, trying to get more information from the landowners. 
So it's, it's all a bit messy. Yes, that's basically all I can say right now. Who actually owns the land there now? Well, more so, I think, well, the landowners, well, there's numerous, well, there's the five major clans that signed this resolution. But when you look at the photo that's on the Autonomous Bougainville Government website, the photo is of the group, and it, like, there's not that many people there. So, again, I'm going back to that, are they, like, specially picked to say yes? I don't know. I, I've got more discovering to do, shall we say. The other thing is, too, Jan, that when Rio Tinto left Bougainville back in 2016, they had a choice of either fixing up the environment way back then or to walk away, and they walked away. And when they walked away, they gave their shares to the Papua New Guinea government, who have 36.4% shares now in Bougainville Copper Limited, and they gave the autonomous Bougainville government 36.4% shares in Bougainville Copper Limited as well. So they were given away by Rio Tinto. Now, so for, for over the past few years, there's been promises from the Papua New Guinea national government to transfer its Bougainville Copper Limited shares to the Bougainville government, but it hasn't happened. It's never happened. And on that note, plus the PNG government, not, government doesn't want Bougainville to have its independence. So now we've got another very messy situation. We're waiting for an outcome of the, of the court proceedings. We're going to have uh, uh, Papua New Guinea and the autonomous Bougainville government going to work together with Bougainville Copper Limited and Rio Tinto again. It kind of looks that way. What about the case by the Australian Human Rights Law Centre about the or the clean-up that didn't happen on Bougainville? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that the, I think it was the last time I spoke with you on 3CR and that was when the 156 residents you know, which represent, uh, which are now being represented by the Australian Human Rights Law Centre, filed a complaint against Rio Tinto um, with the Australian government through the OECD with regard to the environmental damage and the human rights violations caused by former Panguna Mine. Now, Rio Tinto said it would fund the independent human rights and environmental impact statement of the you know damages caused by Panguna Mine and start addressing the disastrous impacts of the mine, which is affecting all the communities, you know, from the mine site right down to the delta of the Jabba River on the coast. And, you know, there's massive amounts of uh, mine waste that have continued to pollute the river, um, making the children sick. Farms and communities downstream were being flooded with mine waste. Back in January... Uh, they had their first meeting of the Panguna Mine Legacy Impact Committee and that was held in Borka, which is the northern end of Bougainville. And it was hosted by the Bougainville government and representatives from clan, landowner and community groups, the PNG government, Rio Tinto, Bougainville Copper Limited and the Human Rights Law Centre all attended that meeting. 
I, I recall the Rio Tinto representative was John Dumbill, and he said that Rio Tinto is sorry that we did not come forward earlier to understand the impacts from the mine. We are ready and willing to participate in this process with you and move forward. So they have said sorry, but, you know, <laughs> I don't know. The Honourable Theonola Roka Matbob from the Autonomous Burgerville Government and spokesman for the Panguna Complaints Group, and she recently won an International Human Rights Award for taking on the mining multinational Rio Tinto in seeking justice for affected communities, thanked the Rio Tinto representative for the apology. She also noted that Rio Tinto had been, you know, kind of constructive in working through the complaint that had been brought against them by their communities through this, you know, through this process. At this stage, now with this current meeting of the Panguna Summit, I'm not sure. I'm not clear. I mean, the cleanup is definitely, you know, long overdue that, you know, Rio Tinto must clean up its mess, you know, and deal with the disaster it left behind. But with the current news about reopening the Panguna mine, I, it just puts to me everything in question. Well, if it does reopen, it's just going to exacerbate the problem if they haven't already cleaned it up. Absolutely. And that's, you know, if they can, they walked away, Rio Tinto walked away back in 2016. And, you know, we're now up to 2022. To me, it just seems that they're very keen to go back in and start mining, you know, be the financial backers of the reopening of the Panguna mine after 30 years. Well, actually, it's 33 years that mine's been shut. Well, we're talking about independence and self-determination or self-reliance for the people of Bougainville, if this goes ahead, they're going to have to wait years and years before they get any returns. What's going to keep the country going in the interim? Very good question, Jan. I cannot um, answer that question. I don't know. There were a lot of ideas in the pipeline. There is an invitation for investors, you know, international investors to invest, you know, with Bougainville. There was a memorandum of agreement signed back in January with South Korea, you know, establishing a joint venture, you know, to help Bougainville move forward economically by helping them, you know, with um, technology, investment to build infrastructure, including roads, telecommunications, electricity, schools, hospitals, and also resources and industry. So, again, does uh, South Korea have an interest in opening, reopening Panguna? Another question. Other news that in January was the Bougainville Water Bottling Limited was launched in central Bougainville uh, to produce bottled water for, um, you know, identified domestic and international markets. So that was another thing that, you know, come out lately. I don't know. It's um, this current news has just thrown. Shall I just say, thrown me? <laughs> well, I do say it's thrown a lot of people in Bougainville as well. Yeah, there. Yeah, it's just uh, been a shock. It's been a shock for many, many people. Another person mentioned to me that it seems like BCL Bougainville Copper Limited has been using financial grants and you know with certain landowner groups for over the past decade. 
um, you know, like funding schools and private scholarships, etc. It appears that this is kind of has this kind of hearts and minds approach, which has got people hooked. And then the recent news with Rio Tinto, you know, you know, the approach from Rio Tinto committing to address the environmental issues has also been leveraged. So how do I say it? You know, do we see this now with kind of narcissistic personalities in the land owner groups, which, uh, you know, which helps, like the representatives that helps to sort of target them for conditioning, which has led to a massive split apparently between landowner groups. Now, I get, do we see the rot set in now behind the scenes? I don't know. Well, as you said just before, we're going to have to wait a little while to find out exactly what is behind all this. Absolutely. You know, we've got to hear from Bougainville Copper Limited. We need to hear from Rio Tinto. We need to hear from the PNG government. Why are they so silent right now? We will keep in touch. Thank you, Jan. Enjoy your day. Nice talking to you. And I've been speaking with Vicky from the Bougainville Freedom Movement. Get excited for 24 hours of content by and for women identifying and gender non-conforming folk. International Women's Day 2022, right here on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.